Blog Talk Radio. November 8th, 2013 edition of Don't Let It Go Unheard, where we discuss news, politics, and culture from the perspective of Ayn Rand's philosophy, the philosophy behind the uniquely American sense of life, the sense of life of those who believe we have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of your own individual happiness. I'm your host, Amy Peikoff, and the title of today's show, if you went to my blog and checked it out, you see, is Today's Political False Alternatives and more. And it turns out, I was motivated to talk about one false alternative, but it turns out that we're going to end up discussing three different false alternatives in the course of today's show. In other words, these are instances in which the number of alternatives that are said to be available in a particular situation are fewer than are actually available. And in all of these, actually, there's two that people say are available, and I I think that there are more. So we'll talk about that. I have a grand plan all laid out for today, and you can check it out at my blog. Just go see the post for today's show at www.dontletitgo.com, and then scroll down on that post to the program notes, and you'll see the links to all the things that I'd like to talk about today. Bosch Faustin is unable to join me in the studio today, unfortunately, so more than ever, I encourage you to participate live if you're listening to me during my broadcast hours, which is Friday, 3 to 5 p.m. Eastern Time over on Blog Talk Radio. You can participate two ways, either in the chat room over at Blog Talk Radio, and I did just send out a link to the chat room, both on the Don't Let It Go on Her page on Facebook, through Twitter and stuff, and uh, so you can find it there. And the other way is by phone. You can call in 760-888-5817. Again, that's 760-888-5817. If you do call in and you want to talk, you push a button. I think it's one that Blog Talk tells you to push if you would like to speak with me. So let's go ahead and dive in because if you saw the agenda of links that I have over at the page, it is a lot of links that I have to talk about. Part of that is because Bosch Faustin isn't here to discuss with me, and so I figure I have to have a whole lot of things that I could talk about if nobody calls in and wants to participate. But the other reason is just that there's just so darn much going on, and people have been great about sending me things to talk about, not only Bosch, but Rob Abiera and some others. So uh, people in the chat room here, Robert is saying, greetings, Amy, he'll miss Bosch, and then... um, Oh, I forget his first name, uh, Kat Nossoff on, on Twitter. He says uh, that Bosch is the second best thing of the show. Well, I'm, I'm hoping I'm the first best thing if, if, the, if he's the second best thing, if I'm not the first best thing. I guess you wouldn't be here. So thanks for joining in over there at the chat room. First story, as you've seen at the top of Dredge today, is that we are apparently making a deal with the devil today. And I'm, I mean the devil. I mean, this is Iran, Iran who... You know, they have people on the streets chanting death to America routinely all the time. And, um, I mean, these are the ones that we are supposedly negotiating with. But the big 
leaked story today, and it's an exclusive over at the Daily Beast that I've linked to over my blog, which is that Obama has secretly been lifting the sanctions on Iran for months now, ever since the latest jerk got elected in June. You know, the idea is, well, this is a new guy. He might be something different. He might be nice to us. Maybe he won't want to kill us as much. I don't know what in the world they're thinking, but they've apparently been softening the sanctions on Iran after the election of this new president in June. And this is months before this current round of nuclear talks in which I guess we're giving away the store anyway, or so say the reports. Uh, the story over at the Daily Beast says that while the negotiations now appear on the verge of a breakthrough, uh, the key condition for Iran, which was relief for, from crippling sanctions, began quietly and modestly five months ago. And the article goes on to say that there are a couple ways in which we have been lifting these sanctions. One is just by a lack of enforcement and designation of violators of the sanctions because what happens is is that we say people cannot trade with Iran and buy their oil and so then what does Iran do they sell the oil through all kinds of front companies companies fronting for Iran and then what do we do we point out all those companies that are fronting for Iran and if we are not vigilant and active in continuing to point out whoever is fronting on a regular basis then that is in effect not enforcing the sanctions. So it says since June 14th, I actually just to give you an idea of, of the numbers. Let's give you a comparison. It says that uh, the Treasury Department in recent years has routinely designated new entities as violators of the sanctions, forcing Iran to adjust in turn. Yeah, they just go find another front company. It says in the six weeks prior to the Iranian elections in June, the Treasury Department issued seven notices of designations of sanctioned violators that included more than 100 new people, companies, aircraft, and sea vessels. 100. Since June 14th, however, and again, this article was just published, okay, so since from June 14th to the beginning of November, it says the Treasury Department has issued only two designation notices that have identified six people and four companies. So that, to me, does sound like backing off the sanctions. But then the article goes on to say that another way in which the U.S. has backed off the sanctions is that our government has fought in Congress any attempts to impose new sanctions on Iran. So that is the second way that we have backed off. All of this to show basically, and, and you know, again, what is my grand plan for the show? First of all, I'm going to show you that Obama is continuing to be destructive of America's interests. That is what we are doing here. We are continuing to be destructive of America's interests. Uh, so first, selling all of our interest off to Iran. I, don't e I can't even understand what it is that we are getting from Iran because we're not getting any real uh, evidence that they're actually stopping their progress towards a nuclear weapon. Uh, it's some sort of vague promises, something that's not even enforceable. What I do know is Benjamin Netanyahu, who talks a great game, but I wish would actually eventually do something, he has lashed out against the deal that's currently being crafted in Geneva. It says, and I've got a link to the story at my blog over at don'tletitgo.com. This is from the Telegraph UK. And it says that Benjamin Netanyahu set himself on a collision course with Israel's Western allies on Friday 
after lashing out at an impending deal over Iran's nuclear program, and he warned that his country would not be bound by it. I hope so, because it sounds like a terrible deal. It says, speaking before the meeting, John Kerry of the U.S. Secretary of State, the Israeli Prime Minister effectively accused Western negotiators of caving in during the talks in Geneva and handing Iran the, quote, deal of the century, End quote. And he says, I understand the Iranians are walking around very satisfied in Geneva as well they should be because they got everything and paid nothing. He says they wanted relief from sanctions after years of a grueling sanctions regime. And he says he thinks this short-term agreement that they're doing is a very bad deal. And he says Israel utterly rejects it. As I understand, we're supposed to lift these sanctions for six months and there's some sort of vague assurances that we're getting. And basically everybody knows that once we lift sanctions, Iran is just going to go full steam ahead and continue to make their nuclear weapons. Um, it says Iran is going to stop enriching uranium, uranium to the 20% level that is close to weapons grade. It's going to turn its existing stockpile into harmless oxide. Uh, it would continue enrichment at the 3.5% purity that's needed to nuclear power stations. It would, it would uh, agree not to activate its plutonium uh, reactor and would agree not to use the more advanced IR2 centrifuges. America is going to ease economic sanctions in return, possibly by releasing some Iranian foreign exchange reserves currently held in frozen accounts. So we're going to free up their money so that they can go ahead and continue to hide their nuclear progress. Um, the meeting is expected to conclude today, so who knows, a deal may have been reached already as I'm speaking at this moment. But what I do know is that Obama, behind the scenes, has already been lifting the sanctions uh, before Iran has even done anything on this idea of just, you know, putting out a fig leaf and extending our hands so that they don't extend their fists, et cetera, et cetera, all the stupid uh, jargon that they've said in the past. And he is not not, not, not uh, pursuing our interests. He is not pursuing the interests of our allies. As far as I can tell, he's just giving Iran a window to develop those nukes. Another story about Obama's impending destructiveness comes thanks to Bosch Faustin. He found this story over on twitchy.com. A recent fundraiser, Obama makes a chilling admission about the courts. And Josh Lederman of the AP says, I missed this line from Obama last night at the DSCC fundraiser, which is, quote, we are remaking the courts. And then they said in a fundraiser in Texas, Obama said his administration is remaking the courts remaking our court system. The full quote from the transcript of the speech at whitehouse.gov is this. He says, we were able to reform our financial system so that the likelihood of taxpayer-funded uh, taxpayer bailouts is a lot less than it was. We were able to expand funding for young people going to college. We were able to expand national service for young people who want to serve. We fought long and hard for consumer protections that weren't there before. And then he's talking about someone at the speech. He says, as Lisa mentioned, he says, we are remaking the courts. He says, I know that we've got some lawyers here. And here in Texas, sometimes people feel a little frustrated about the pace of appointments here in Texas. But you should know that in addition to the Supreme Court, we've been able to nominate and confirm judges of extraordinary quality. Now, if Obama says judges are 
judges of extraordinary quality. You know what that means. Judges who tow his party line, who are on board with his interpretation of what Obamacare is and isn't in terms of constitutionality, etc. He says, we've got judges of extraordinary quality all across the country on federal benches. He says, we're actually, when it comes to the district court, matching the pace of previous presidents. And he says, when it comes to the appellate court, we're just a little bit behind, and we're just going to keep focused on it. And then, of course, many people found that statement disturbing out on Twitter. You can only imagine what it means if Obama is appointing judge after judge after judge because this means that if we are going to raise constitutional challenges to all the destructive measures that Obama and the Democrats and the appeasing Republicans are enacting, the chance of those challenges diminishes, you know, the chance of those challenges succeeding diminishes with more and more judges appointed by Obama. So this is not at all good news. This is more and more destructiveness by our dear president. What do we got here in the chat room in terms of uh, reactions? Now, I've got two different computers here, and I've got a mouse, and I've got a touchpad, and I'm touching the touchpad, hoping to get the computer that's got the mouse. Let's see how we do it here. Uh, Robert NYC, in terms of the Iran-Israel situation, he says, as we knew, it will be up to Israel to go in there and take preemptive action. Yeah, Robert. I mean, as long as he does it before it's too late. Netanyahu, time and again, I love, I love the assertiveness with which he speaks on behalf of Israel's interests. And then time and again, I'm disappointed because he ends up not doing anything. So I'm wondering if it's going to happen. And and Robert agrees with me. He thinks that Obama's goal is to weaken America. And the thing that is so much worse is that he's doing it behind the scenes, quietly, because he has so much power to initiate this stuff via the Treasury Department and the rest of his administration, the so-called executive branch. The, the, you know, the power that he has to do all the destruction that he wants in the next couple of years and, and the patsies that we have in the Republicans, both in the House and, and the Senate for the most part, it's, uh, it, it's really, really frightening. So we'll see. John Kenny in the chat room says that there's a, there was another large explosion at one of Iran's nuclear facilities last week. It may have been sabotaged by local anti-regime dissidents along with the Mossad from Israel. He says he doesn't believe that Iran will get the bomb. I hope you're right, John. I do hope that you are right. And so does Robert NYC in the chat room here. And Matt in the chat room says that honestly this, and I assume he means Israel. He says this is probably the biggest problem caused by eight years of Obama. No, no, he's talking about the courts. He thinks that the courts being packed and that nothing that can be done about that afterwards is the biggest problem caused by eight years of Obama. And I think that's right. The power of appointment to the judiciary is devastating, uh, particularly suppose we get a Ted Cruz next time, right? I mean, he, again, I think he is the best of the potential contenders of 2016 out there, Ted Cruz. Suppose we get him and he and a Republican majority, again, let's be very optimistic, Suppose they enact all sorts of great repeals and wonderful rollbacks of our huge overreaching federal government. Challenges in the courts coming before these judges appointed by Obama. I mean, this is, you know, he's got his tentacles everywhere. And it is a really frightening thing. People out on Twitter that were 
discussed here on Twitchy. They're saying it is terrifying. Um, people, are, of course, are, are forwarding it around. Is there no end to Obama's destructive behavior? Says someone named Serto on Twitter. And it says, if Obama gets his claws deeply into the judicial system, this country is doomed for sure, says Alcoholic. <sighs> uh, you know, when people put Alcoholic and, and sort of, you know, facetious tag names out on Twitter, you almost can't blame them these days because the news is so darn bad. Let's go ahead and go on and continue our cataloging of Obama's destructive behavior. This story was given to me by Rob Abiera over at the Don't Let It Go Unheard page on Facebook. Thank you, Rob, for sending it. Obama uses executive order in sweeping takeover of nation's climate change policies, right? So he uses the administrative branch, right? The administrative branch is legislating. I mean, it's the administrative branch legislating that destroyed so many people's health insurance policies, right? The administrative branch was given this power according to the Obamacare legislation. They went ahead and exercised it, having that stupid grandfather rule that says if the companies change the policies at all, they can be canceled. So that is one way that Obama is, uh, you know, kind of asserting more power, even though he can't really get any legislation passed. The other thing that he's doing, of course, is issuing executive orders. And so he has apparently issued an executive order in which he has created some sort of task force, all these task force. Imagine the federal budget that is going into Obama-created task forces where people just sit around and BS about stuff and basically decide how to spend more of our tax dollars on things in, you know, this one is going to be in the cause of climate change. So, you know, it says through a stroke of a pen, President Obama, and this was on Friday, I think it was uh, November 1st last week, used his executive powers to elevate and take control of, of climate change policies in an attempt to streamline sustainability initiatives and potentially skirt legislative oversight and push a federal agenda on states. Who has he appointed to the task force? Not surprisingly, mostly Democrats. And this is the thing that I find so funny, right? Um, he's got a task force of state and local officials to advise the administration on how to respond to severe storms, wildfire, wildfires, droughts, and other potential impacts of climate change. And it includes governors of seven states, all Democrats, a Republican governor of Guam, I don't know if a Republican governor of Guam is very much of a Republican. Don't know anything about that governor. Who knows? Uh, and then there are 14 mayors and two other local leaders. And it says all but three of those appointed are Democrats. They're going to look at federal money spent on roads, bridges, flood control, and other projects. And it's going to recommend how structures can be made more resilient to the effects of climate change. He wants to spend more money on infrastructure. He wants to use climate change as an excuse to do it. That's what he's doing. He says, we're going to have to get prepared. He says, that's why this plan will also protect critical sectors of our economy and prepare the United States for the impacts of climate change that we cannot avoid. Hey, if Congress doesn't agree that more money needs to be spent, then I'll just come up with an executive order that's going to push that money around. 
Um, we'll partner with communities seeking to help prepare for droughts and floods, reduce the risk of wildfires, blah, 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 blah. Now, you would think, right, because they're citing, for instance, Sandy, Hurricane Sandy, that you would get Obama's buddy Chris Christie on board as one of the people on the task force. But no, it does not include Chris Christie. Can you believe that? Uh, it says the, the task force includes Governors Jerry Brown of California, Jay Inslee of Washington, Neil Abercrombie of Hawaii, as well as Delaware Governor Jack Markell, Maryland Governor Martin O'Malley, Vermont Governor Peter Shumlin, and Illinois Governor Pat Quinn. And then big city mayors come from Los Angeles, Philadelphia, Houston. All of these are Democrat governors. Uh, Chris Christie snubbed. Maybe they thought Chris Christie, as pragmatic as he is, would actually see that all that they're doing is they're using climate change, you know, climate change as an excuse to prescribe spending on infrastructure, which is what Obama wants to do if he can get, uh, you know, if he can get a budget passed. He can never get his budget passed. So what does he do? Executive order. That's what I'll do. So he's spending more of your tax money, having all these people BS. They're furthering the lie about climate change, that climate change is something that we need to, you know, spend money to use sustainable, you know, energy resources like solar and all this kind of stuff. We've debunked solar on this show a few times. Solar is so completely uneconomical. It's basically a theft of money. It's a, it's a black hole. So, I, I, you know, they just want to put more money down a big black hole and do it in the name of climate change, and that's what he's done by executive order. So this is more of the destruction. If you want to chime in on this, go ahead and call 760-888-5817, or as people are doing here, go ahead and chime in in the chat room. John in the chat room says, maybe Washington, D.C. will be inundated by rising sea levels. The only thing I don't like about that, Sean, is that then they would use that as evidence of climate change. What I love is when they have to squirm and when they see that, for instance, what, what are they saying right now? We're in a 15-year pause on climate change or something like that. I, I don't even understand how they think that they can still, you know, oh, you know, the climate change, climate change. I think climate is always changing in any major weather event. They're just going to attribute to that and then say, oh, we need to throw more money at it. Otherwise, people will suffer. How could you be against this? Infrastructure always means lining the pockets of leftist groups with taxpayer money, says Robert NYC in the chat room. And that is true, of course. I mean, you know, just yesterday I was out in front of a Target and this woman, you know, just sits there in front of the door and she says, can you spare $1 for the homeless? Just $1 for the homeless, you know? And imagine how much of that dollar, even if you had an extra dollar and you wanted to give to somebody who was homeless, how much of that dollar is used in their bureaucracy of whatever organization that that woman represents? Every bit of government spending when they're doing this, there's a huge line of bureaucrats and administrators and task forces of people sitting around drinking champagne on our dollar and BSing about this stuff. Uh, Matt in the chat room agrees. Uh, infrastructure uh, spending never quite equals a pipeline in North Dakota. Yeah, imagine that. <sighs> Robert NYC says, 
am I allowed to eat when mentioning Chris Christie without Bosch being in the studio? You know, this is the problem. Chris Christie's in the news so much this week that if I was going to eat every single time that I mentioned him, I would have to be eating during the entire show. So I'm thinking I'm just going to have to settle for sipping this latte. I've got one of these Breve lattes that have a lot of good half and half sitting in them. So I'm thinking that's going to sustain me. I'm not sure if it's going to. We'll have to see how that goes. But So we have Obama selling our interest to Iran. We have Obama saying that he is remaking the courts, which I agree is one of the most scary things that he could be doing right now because it's got such drastic long-term effects because of the terms of the federal judges, the judges on the federal bench, and then Obama using executive orders. And this is just a reminder. You know, I don't even know. I should probably get a daily report of Obama's executive orders just to keep up with this stream of what he's been doing, trying to legislate by pen because he can't get it done. I mean, that's one thing at least. I mean, Boehner has stopped most of the most horrible, horrible destruction that he's been able to do. But it's it's just too bad that we did not have a majority in that first term because this Obamacare is uh, horrible. FDA, another part of the administration that Obama can just tell what to do and not have much legislative accountability. The FDA is going to ban trans fats. So says an article published in the Huffington Post on the 7th, which is yesterday, says heart-clogging trans fats. Now, I don't know. Do do trans fats clog hearts? Anybody in the chat room, if you're an evidence, excuse me, if you are an expert about trans fats, you can tell me more about them. As I understand it, trans fats have all sorts of horrible um, oxidative effects on our cells. There's all sorts of evil oxidants and that what you want to do is avoid these trans fats because they give off all of these uh, oxidating things. And so that basically what you want to do is have a diet that is high in natural fats, like the half and half that I'm drinking here in my Breve Latte. But in any event, people are already starting to avoid the trans fats. Uh, It says they've been slowly disappearing from grocery aisles and restaurant menus in the last decade. Now the FDA is finishing the job. It says the FDA plans to announce later Thursday that it will require the food industry to gradually phase out all trans fats, saying that they are a threat to people's health. Commissioner Margaret Hamburg says the move could prevent 20,000 heart attacks a year and 7,000 deaths. I would love to see where she thinks those statistics come from. I I bet there's a lot more, you know, with the carbs and everything behind those heart attacks than you know, than the fats. And she, and she says, while the amount of the trans fats in the country's diet has declined dramatically in the last decade, I was bored and I decided that I needed to wield my government power a little. No, sorry, I, I stopped reading. I don't know what they do. They sit there and they say, okay, well, everyone's already avoiding trans fats on, our, uh, on their own. So since they're not going to be outraged, why don't we just come up with a ban so we can pretend that we're doing something on behalf of the American people without making too many people mad? I mean, that's what I think they must be doing here. I have, I have no idea. You know, if, if people are already avoiding trans fats, then why bother? And there might be some really tasty things that can be made only with trans fats. 
and only enjoyed that way and people should be able to enjoy them on occasion as a treat and now you're going to destroy them entirely because hey you know better than us right trans fats they say have long has long been criticized by nutritionists and new york and other local governments have banned them already oh okay well if they have then appeal to authority we may as well do it says the agency isn't yet setting a timeline but we'll collect comments for two months before officials determine how long it will take. So they're just basically asking, you know, how, how long will it take for you guys to submit to us, you fools who will just continue producing while we point a gun at you? Awesome. In uh, the chat room here, and Robert NYC is saying that it's inflammation that clogs arteries. Yes, that's right. And I would say that probably trans fats might have a role in inflammation. Uh, Matt says, once trans fats disappear, you'll be on to the next thing, cholesterol, salt, etc. Yeah. <laughs> he says, living is far too dangerous. You could die. I, I don't, you know, they, they try to take all the joy out of life. As it is, we are bombarded with this bad news every single day. But now the bad news has to include them banning all the yummy, tasty, fun things that people want out there in the world. It says, to phase them out, the FDA said it had made a preliminary determination that trans fats no longer fall in the agency's, quote, generally recognized as safe category. Generally recognized by whom? Based on what? That's a huge appeal to authority if I've ever seen one. It says it's reserved for thousands of additives that manufacturers can add to foods without FDA review. Once trans fats are off the list, anyone who wants to use them would have to petition the agency for a regulation allowing it, and that would be unlikely to be approved. Does anyone in the chat room know of a food that is good, that you want to keep eating, and requires trans fats? For its manufacture. That's what I would like to know. Scientists, says the article, have, uh, say that there are no health benefits to trans fats, that they can raise so-called bad cholesterols, increasing the risk of heart disease, etc. It says many companies have already phased them out, prompted by new nutrition labels. It says though they have been removed from many items, the fats are still found in processed foods, including some microwave popcorns, Ugh and frozen pizzas, refrigerated doughs, and ready-to-use frostings. They're also sometimes used by restaurants that use the fats for frying. Many larger chains have phased them out, but smaller restaurants may still get trans fats from suppliers. I mean, you know, this is the thing. I would like to avoid them myself just based on the little bit that I know about the trans fats. The fact that they, I think they have like a low smoke point and then they give off all of these toxins and oxidants and things like that. And you just don't want to consume much of this stuff. Your body can only, you know, get rid of so many toxins without going into an inflammatory state. And inflammation is bad for you. Okay, it's bad for you. That's fine. But let people make the judgment. There might be some of this stuff, a certain microwave popcorn, a certain ready-to-use frosting that would be worth having a little bit every so often don't take the joy out of life uh you know it's not like there's false advertising here there's plenty of information out there for people to make decisions for themselves but of course you know you're too stupid you're too stupid to make your own decisions as to what to eat <laughs> matt in the chat room this is in quotation marks this is good he says you can keep your trans fats if you like them yeah i don't know grandfathered in trans fats 
How about you? Can, you know, I, want, I would like to know. I'd really like to know how many trans fats Barack Obama eats. I bet he eats them. I bet he eats them. And I bet he will get a presidential you know, dispensation, special permission to eat trans fats after they are banned by the FDA. Of course, by the time they ban him, he's going to be out of office anyway. And then he'll be somewhere where he's going to get a special shipment of trans fats from overseas, from people who love him or something. I don't know. People are talking about Christy in the chat room too, but I'm going to resist. I'm not going to talk about Chris Christie yet at this point. If you do want to call in and talk about any of these stories, 760-888-5817 and press the little one button and we can chat. But let's go go ahead and continue to talk about Obama and the Democrats and his administration's destructive, destructive tendencies. Uh, one quick fun little fact here. FDA to ban fan, you know, trans fats, right? I'm assuming, and I, I don't even know, McDonald's probably got rid of trans fats by now anyway, but when were the Beijing Olympics, says somebody who was ignorant? I think this is a while ago, right? The Beijing Olympics, 2012, right? Or no, it's not 2012 because that says London. So when was it Beijing the last time? 2008? Probably. I'm sorry. I'm ignorant. I'm not following anything but politics lately. Uh, anyway, there's a story, thanks to Rob Aviera, and it says that Usain Bolt, who is a champion Olympic sprinter, yeah, 2008, I, I deducted that from looking at this uh, <laughs> the picture here on this story. It says Usain Bolt ate 1,000 chicken McNuggets at the Beijing Olympics. Now, this is an estimate because what he did is he started one day eating a box of 20 chicken McNuggets for one meal. And then on the next day, he'd have like two for breakfast, another box for lunch, another box for dinner, uh, or two boxes for dinner. And then he says he even grabbed some fries and an apple pie to go with it. Presumably, back in 2008, McDonald's was still including all those evil trans fats in their uh, diet. And probably over in Beijing, there aren't necessarily the uh, restrictions yet as they are here in the U.S. So is he, isn't he dead? He's supposed to die, right, if trans fats are evil and you eat a 1,000 McNuggets over a short period of time, plus you add in those evil fried apple pies and the french fries and stuff. Shouldn't he have, have just died by now? I don't know. And he looks so healthy. And, and here he is, you know, again, in these pictures, it's 2012 Olympics in London. I guess he's 26 now. He's 22 then. And uh, he, lo- he looks good. Looks good. He survived it. Again, in moderation, you can have this stuff. And I, I mean, I, I would like to also taste, uh, you know, again, I don't eat this stuff, but I would like to taste a McNugget made with their preferred that they fry it in that includes the trans fats and the McNugget that is fried in the oil that doesn't have the trans fats and see what the taste difference is. Why do people do this stuff? Because it tastes good because people will continue to buy it. But no, no pleasure. 08 is when Michael Phelps won eight medals. So it was August 8th of 08, Michael Phelps won eight medals. So eight is the lucky number in China. Excellent, Robert NYC in the chat room. But I mean, do you agree with me? So here is a guy, if this stuff was that bad, I think that definitely you should have a heart attack and die just from all this trans fat in your body. How could he perform well at the Olympics if it was so bad for you? 
I don't know. So it could be that it's a, a big scare that none of us should be worried about. But the biggest thing is government force, government wielding its power and taking away choice from people, which is what the FDA is doing here. And all of this, of course, is a prelude to the big news of the last couple weeks, really. And it's people digesting the fact that their president lied to them about their ability to keep their insurance plans. I've got a link over at my blog at DontLetItGo.com under the program notes for today's show to a story, Washington Post. And this is, I think it's notable when somebody at the Washington Post writes a story with the headline talking about Obama and it says a dishonest presidency, a dishonest presidency. Mark A. Thiessen over at the Washington Post, he says, the Wall Street Journal broke the news this weekend that even as President Obama was telling the American people that they could keep their health plans, and it was either 24 or 25 or 29 times that Obama said over and over, if you like your health plan, you can keep your health plan, period, etc. Go look at the montages on YouTube. I'm sick of it. In any event, it said some White House policy advisors objected to the breadth of Obama's keep your plan promise, but those policy advisors were overruled by his political aides. And Mark Thiessen, the writer here over at the Washington Post, is really surprised. And he says if, if truly the policy advisors were overruled by political aides when they're pointing out that this is a lie, he says this is simply damning. He says, it's not easy to get a lie into a presidential speech. Every draft address is circulated to the White House senior staff and key cabinet officials in something called the so-called staffing process. Now, one thing I would just hypothesize about with Thiessen is that it might be in Obama's administration that there isn't as much circulating and checking and stuff going on. I wouldn't be surprised if there's a lot of ineptness and laziness behind the scenes and that they're doing this stuff at the last minute. I remember recently that Obama was giving a speech and he actually didn't have the remarks in front of him. They had to run at the very last minute and hand it and put it in his hand. And he sat there and stalled and made jokes for time. That's terrible, right? And this is this is a president, and it really should be the case. I mean, you know, I years ago I was an intern for Judge Kaczynski on the Ninth Circuit. He's actually now the chief judge of the Ninth Circuit, and um, oh, sorry, I'm looking at something here and I got distracted. But uh, I was I was an intern for him, and Kaczynski went through draft after draft after draft of his opinions, and they were checked and checked and edited and edited by clerks. Interns got a chance to look at it, too, and and just see if they had any typos or anything that we found. But he personally went through them time and time again before they were published. That is the way it should be. I mean, if you are a professional, particularly your president of the United States, anything that you're saying should be checked and double-checked and triple-checked. So, I mean, this is how it should be. And what Thiessen is saying, from his experience, that's how it was in other administrations. So he says every draft address is circulated to the senior staff, key cabinet officials. It's called the staffing process. Every line is reviewed by dozens of seniors of officials. I mean, think, think about this. I just remembered Benghazi, right? The remarks that not even the president, but 
you know, some of the other administration officials, the remarks that they were going to make on Benghazi, how those were vetted and, and circulated to so many different people to give their input before they would even make a statement about what happened in Benghazi. So, I mean, that's how, you know, it should be. Of course, it shouldn't be for the purpose of covering it up. It should be for the purpose of making sure that what they're saying is true and accurate, which is what's going on here. It says He says every line... Typically, he says, every line is reviewed by dozens of senior officials who offer comments and factual corrections. During this process, it turns out, some of Obama's policy advisors objected to the you can keep your plan pledge, pointing out that it was untrue. But he says it stayed in the speech. He says that does not happen by accident. It requires willful intent to deceive. In other words, evasion. These people are evading the truth, trying to make the truth whatever they say it is. Uh, he says, in the Bush White House, we speechwriters would often come up with what we thought were great turns of phrase to help the president explain his policies. But we also had a strict fact-checking process where every iteration of every proposed presidential utterance was scrubbed to ensure that it was both accurate and defensible. If the fact checkers told us that a line was inaccurate, we could either kill it or find another way to make the point accurately. He says, I cannot imagine a scenario in which the fact checkers or White House policy advisors would tell us something in a draft speech was factually incorrect and that that and that that guidance would be ignored or overruled by political advisors. And then he says, the whole episode is a window into a fundamentally dishonest presidency and he says the story gets worse because the white house aides discussed then using media interviews to explain the nuances of this little line the succinct line as they called it in his stump speeches so you know they said yeah okay you're giving a speech you know you want a little sound bite to give to people and of course it's irresistible to give this little sound bite but why don't you at least at least you know explain the truth when you go on the sunday talk shows or whatever they said, no, they decided not to do so because, quote, officials worried that delving into details such as the small number of people who might lose insurance could be confusing and would clutter the president's message, end quote. Millions is a small number. There is a piece that I actually circulated out there this week on uh, either my personal Facebook page or the Don't Let It Go on Her page on Facebook in which uh, Forbes a writer at Forbes estimates that between employees losing their employer-sponsored insurance plans and all the individuals that are going to be losing their plans under Obamacare, that the estimates are up to now 93 million people will eventually lose their current health insurance and be forced onto an Obamacare-compliant plan. That's a lot of people. And he, But even when it was 10 million, again, I get offended when you've got somebody um, you know, on the five, for instance, uh, Bob Beckel saying, oh, you know, it's 10 out of 310 million. Who cares about that? We care about that. I mean, you, you know, uh, again, Dana Perino, for all her faults, she was right. She was saying, look, you don't care about the individual. There's an individual who is being directly hurt by Obama's policies, and many Democrats don't care. Oh, you'll be better off when you have to pay so much more for your health insurance. Have you looked at some of these policies, by the way? 
the more affordable policies that are out there, if you go onto the exchange, I've, you know, I've browsed around a little bit. I'm actually having to look for what my uh, health insurance situation is going to be next year. And I look at all the different ones that are available. And a lot of these plans, the ones that are actually semi-affordable, they only cover 70% of your health care costs. The ideal, if you're truly budgeting, if you are on a budget, you want to buy a plan in which you have a certain amount of maximum outlay dollars per year. And if you're really a smart budgeter, you'll say, okay, I have to pay X amount in premiums per month. And then in addition to that, I've got a maximum out of pocket, according to my insurance policy, of X thousand per year, whatever it is. And you would like to just be able to know what that is. But a lot of these policies, people think, oh, once I buy my insurance policy, everything's great. But a lot of the cheaper policies, a lot of the cheaper policies, the ones that people can actually afford, they cover only 70%. So if you do have a major medical event, you think you're covered, and let, but if you're, if you're not reading the fine print on your policies, you're going to get socked for a bill for 30% of who knows, thousands and thousands of dollars. This could be a lot of money depending on what happens to you. Uh, then, of course, there is, as Matt check, you know, points out in the chat room, maternity care for people who are 67 years old and male. Uh, so... In any event, they lied, they knew they were lying, they evaded the fact that they were lying to the American people and this is bad, and they decided not even to do any cleanup on media interviews to explain the lie and say, oh, well, you know, and they just let it go on and on and on. And again, he's on video 24 times, 29 times, whatever it was, uh, you know, talking about this. I'm trying to see if they actually have the uh, the number. Yeah, 24 separate occasions, and there's a link to the 24 separate occasions on this story. So if you go to Washington Post story that's linked to at my blog at don'tletitgo.com, you can find this story. But New York Times editorial tried to cover up and say, Mr. Obama clearly misspoke. And Thiessen here says, he says, 24 separate occasions. He says, sorry, the president didn't misspeak. He says, this was a premeditated deception. This wasn't something that Obama ad-libbed. It was a line in a presidential speech that was carefully reviewed by the entire White House senior staff. And if it wasn't reviewed one particular time, there were 24 separate occasions in which this could have been reviewed. So there it was. He says, Obama's political advisors were told by his policy aides the statement was inaccurate, but they decided to let Americans believe the falsehood. Obama, our president, lying to us about the effects of the health care legislation. I've got a call here that I'm going to go ahead and take. Hi, who's this? Hi, Amy. It's Earl Parson. Hi, Earl. I don't think you've called you in doing? before. I don't think you've called, I in, called in before. I called on your very first show. <laughs> oh. Uh, actually. Um but I've been, uh, you know, I've been a big fan of the show, and I've, especially when you somehow, uh, when you switched to Fridays, it was hard for me to listen, and then I wasn't in the habit of getting the podcast. And then uh, about a month and a half or a couple of months ago, kind of in the run-up to the big Ted Cruz push to, uh, to, to repeal or delay um, mm-hmm. the, the so-called uh, Affordable Care Act or the unaffo- Unaffordable Care Act, I, I caught that show, and you really you you completely 
got me reengaged and like hooked on the show now with those with those few shows, and uh, I haven't missed. Um, although sometimes with work, I can't quite get a Friday, and I I get the podcast, but. I've really appreciated lately. You've been, I think you've been doing just excellent work on the show. So, well, thank you for for, for tuning in, and, and thank you for calling in now. Did you have a reaction to any of the latest catalog of destructiveness by our well, dear president? It it got personal with me this week because I got my uh, Obamacare ding letter, as I'm calling it, uh, on uh-huh. Monday of this week of this past week. And I was kind you of know, I'm, I'm kind a, of wondering. I, I was I was just, I was just gonna say it's getting to the point where it would be more unique to ask for a phone call from someone who has an individual policy that is not being canceled. I mean, it, it's, I, I, don't, I actually don't know anyone who has an individual policy that is not being canceled because of Obamacare. Do you? No, I don't. Yeah. I don't. So and, it, and, and, and the letter says I have, okay, I got it around the beginning of November, and it, mm-hmm. part of the letter was October 1st to December 15th, in which time to decide what I'm going to do for next year. So a full month of my of my planning is automatically gone. Uh, now I, I mean, you know, so now I mean, six weeks is probably plenty of time for me to make a decision. But still, I mean, it's just ridiculous. Do you have any idea what you're going to do? I mean, are you going to go for the um, cheapest I'm, plan you I'm, can find? Or are you going to try to buy one of these platinum ones? Or I don't know. I'm. I haven't looked into it in that much detail yet, and I, yeah. from, and I didn't really even go through the whole package yet that they sent me because I've had a really, really busy week this week, and uh, I'll probably get to it this weekend. But um, it did say that there are still private market options without going to the exchange. Oh, yes. Uh, oh, yeah. Whatever that – and so I wasn't really fully aware of that. I would like to do whatever I can to stay out of the exchange and stay in the private market, um, if at all possible. Um, I don't really think going uninsured and just paying the penalty and trying to make a stand like that. I mean, I think it's, it's admirable and awesome for people that want to do that, but I feel like my work is somewhat hazardous and I want to, I, I can't really, I don't feel like I can go without anything. Um, just as no, a I mean, matter of I, for me, I would, so. I would say, I mean, you, you just, you have to do exactly what makes sense for you in the situation. I don't think that, buying or not buying health insurance is going to have an effect on the repeal of Obamacare or, you know, I I think no matter what the insurance companies, private insurance companies are eventually going to go bankrupt. If you buy insurance on a private market, you might actually help private insurance companies stay better longer. I mean, my, my little stand is is I'm going to try to buy insurance privately and not go through any kind of an exchange mechanism. I I don't want to do that. So, right. yeah. Yeah. But I, but I think that also saying saying that he lied is such a, is just such a understatement about what this all is. I mean, that's just a ridiculous right. thing. Because also think back, okay? We have Obama, where everyone's, you know, they're, they're saying he lied. Well, it's true, but you know, Bush lied, people died, and okay, we heard that a million times, and then you kind of got tired of hearing it, and who cares? In a, in a certain sense, and then. Clinton lied, you know, about the affairs, and it became parsing of the word is, you know, and like they've all lied about, they all lie about things, 
you know, presidents lie about things, and it just is, you know, maybe somebody cares at one point or it gets a little reporting. This was a deliberate deception on a grand scale to push a massive agenda. Right. Okay, right. it was a deliberate deception on a grand scale, and, and like, that's, some, that's, that's even, you know, minimizing it. And, like, saying that it was a lie is, is just such an, uh, you know, understatement, and, and uh, I don't know, that's starting to really, really get to me, that all, all that you hear for the most part is that it was a lie, but, I mean, and it's true no, that I it mean, was, but that's just such, a, that's such an inadequate description. Well, and, and to me, the thing that always comes to mind now is, is Plato, right? So the idea of Plato's Republic, in which the philosopher kings would say, okay, we are justified in, in, in essence, lying to the citizens of the ideal city-state. Uh, you know, there's a whole lot of the average citizens that aren't capable of understanding the form of the good, you know, the higher forms in the in the superior dimension. And so basically the philosopher kings feel that they have to lie to the citizens and that it's perfectly justified. It's a noble lie. And as long as it's a noble lie, then it's fine. I mean, what, you know, what's the big deal? Why, why should we hold Obama accountable? You know, the, the thing that I was about to play, and I don't know if you want to stay on and, and talk about it after I play it, is Obama's personal apology to Americans that, you know, lost their health coverage. That is the one of the least apologetic sounding apologies that I've ever heard. He he, he doesn't care that people yeah, are he, losing he their doesn't. coverage. Well, he he doesn't he doesn't care, and and because he knew going in that this is what's going to happen. It's just it's just happen. a casualty. Yeah, it's just it's just a casualty it's, for the just, you know, the public. Like, oh, well, this is just the way it had to go, and we had to sell it the way we did, and you know it, it was you know. There's no, there is no remorse, no regret, and there, there won't be, and there couldn't be. If there was, it wouldn't have gone the way it did. I mean, it was all deliberate, and it was set up. So, did you, uh, did you watch? Did you, did you watch the little video? No, because I, mean, I, I heard it every time he said it, all the way through the run up to the passing of the thing. And no, no, no. But I mean, did you, did you, um, did you hear, did you hear his so-called apology? Oh, the apology. No, I haven't heard the so-called apology. Let me let me boot this up here and, <laughs> okay. and play it, and then and then I'm going to come right back to you right after. Hold on, hold on a second. All right, I'll hold. All right. Okay. Let's see if I'm clicking the correct buttons here. Okay, I put the hold button for him. Now I get here onto my laptop. I'm afraid we're going to have to survive through a few seconds of commercial. So how will I do this? Yeah, I will. I will mute our little commercial and I will talk to you for 11, 10, 9 seconds that we are waiting for this. But let me get some nice volume on this so that you can hear Obama's non-apology. Okay, here we go. I am sorry that they uh, you know, are finding themselves in this situation based on assurances they got from me. We've got to work hard to make sure that uh, they know uh, we hear them and that we're going to do everything we can. Uh, to deal with folks who find themselves uh, in a tough position as a consequence of this. People finding themselves in situations. He says he's sorry that people find themselves in situations. He's, he's not apologetic. 
He's not apologetic that they're there. He says, oh, we hear them and we're going to deal with them. I mean, this, I don't know. This, this, is, this is not an apology. Um, if you got an apology like that from a friend who actually did something bad to you, Earl, what would you do? Well, I mean, it would be the end of the friendship, obviously. But this, what he said, if, there's even like a more sinister way of reading what he said, of like interpreting what he said, because he said, well, well we're going to have well, to deal with folks who find themselves in this situation. I'm like, well, <laughs> you're going to have to be dealt with by us now. You better not make too much noise or we'll have to deal with you. It's kind of oh, yeah. like how I heard it. Because that's what he said. He said, well, you know, people find themselves in this situation and blah, blah, blah. Well, we're going to have to deal with folks who find themselves in this situation. And So now, okay, now I'm someone who he's going to have to deal with. Well, all right. You're going to have to deal with me now. <laughs> but, I mean, you know, the thing that gets me is the passive voice language that he uses. He's saying... Yeah. He's sorry that there are people who find themselves in this situation because of reliance on statements that he made. That's just a non-apology for lying. So, yeah, it is, I mean, he's done a lot more than lie. But he can't even apologize about the lying part. Now, what, if he actually admits that he lied, then what? You know, I, I don't understand. But, that, I mean, he really is. He, he, he thinks he's the platonic philosopher king and that he can just tell everybody the noble lie. And as long as the goal is noble, which is, of course, giving us universal health coverage, then people shouldn't think it's such a big deal. And, of course, you know, he's going to deal with all those people who find themselves in that unfortunate situation of, of not being able to afford the health plan that, of their choice anymore. Yeah, and it's not, we're going to fix this, we're going to make it right, we're going to take care of this. You know, we have a, you know, it's, it's we're going to have to, it's, it's unfortunate that there, there's people in this situation that thought they that must have misunderstood something I said, and now we're in this unfortunate situation. So we're going to have to deal with these people. Hmm, okay, well, we're just going to have to deal with these people who find themselves in this situation. Now we're going to fix it. Now we're going to restore your plans by repealing that crappy legislation. It's, yeah, we're gonna have to deal with these people. Well, in, and in and the like house, try and shut I, them up and make them go away and deal with this, you know, damage control. Deal with it. Yeah, we'll just we'll just deal with you. There's somebody in the house who is proposing a piece of legislation in which they would actually, you know, if 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 you like your plan, you can keep your plan. I think that's what the title of the legislation is. And I think they're voting on it. I mean, it would be great if if you had on record all of the members of the House or the Senate that either voted for or against a piece of legislation that says, if you like your plan, you can keep your plan. But, you know, look at the manipulation in the media. I mean, the misrepresentation in the media. The headline says, Obama personally apologizes for Americans losing health coverage. Did that sound like an apology? He, he's sorry that this happened, but it didn't sound to me like he was taking personal responsibility for it happening. It's like, oh, well, it wasn't really my fault, but I, it, it's terrible that that hurricane struck them over there. You know, it, he's, he's not taking any personal responsibility for it. So I, I, it, it's just more of the same from him, a bunch of lies and garbage. And he's going to go on and continue with all of the destructive things that we've been just cataloging this entire first hour, packing the courts selling our interests to Iran, basically letting them obtain nuclear weapons to go after 
first probably Israel and then maybe eventually us and everything that he's doing. So I, I think it's utterly depressing. But what I want to go into the next hour, I hope you'll stick around. I haven't uh, totally depressed you, Earl. But in the next hour, we want, to talk, we want to talk about if there's any hope for some future politician to come and undo some of this damage. I'm going to try and uh, – oh, that's, that is a good second hour. I'm going to try and stick around. I have to go back to a, a construction site I'm kind of managing today. But I wanted to uh, – I'm going to try and – I can't stay on the line. I'll try and – Keep listening, and maybe I'll call in if something else comes up. But uh, on the trans fats, mm-hmm. can I do one quick thing on that? Sure. Um, like on fast food, right? The point, and you kind of touched on this, you sort of said this, but the point of fast food is that it's yummy and quick and easy and cheap. That's yep. what fast food is, you know? And, yeah, if people eat it every day or if it's a dominant thing in your diet, it's going to show, and you shouldn't be eating that way, and you should have better sense than that. But – I think one of the things also about why trans fats are, um, would be used a lot is that I was reading about it. They, are, uh, they have a much longer shelf life because of the way they're made. So they're, there's like preserved – I don't think that they add preservatives, but I think it's just more like the nature of the substance is, mm-hmm. uh, lasts much longer on the shelf. So for fast food, and if it fries things really well and tastes yummy – you know, they can buy it in big tubs. It's cheaper to store. It doesn't have to be refrigerated or whatever. And it's just, you know, I think that's one of the reasons that it's used also. But in the context of something that's quick, easy, fast, and cheap, that's, you know, the, probably the right kind of thing to use for that. And, yeah, exactly. it's ridiculous that it's, you know, being banned on a national scale or whatever. Oh, yeah, no, so. def- definitely. This is ju- It's just more. And, again, people are already avoiding it. So what right. are these regulatory agencies doing? They're saying, oh, I'm bored. I'm twiddling my thumbs. Where can I point my gun today? Oh, I think I'll ban trans fats, and people won't be too upset because they all know it's terrible for them anyway. They'll think that we're actually helping them against the evil big businessmen and greedy fast food chains, you know? So. Yeah, and the whole discussion just goes to health statistics and not a mention of rights of any kind right. ever. Right. It's not in the reporting or in – the thing at all so exactly exactly well thanks earl for calling and thanks for a great show yep and we'll we'll talk next time thank you and everyone you are listening to don't let it go unheard this is amy peacock speaking to you we are entering our second hour in the first hour we have cataloged obama's and his administration's destructiveness the uh just on so many fronts, destroying our interests, the, destroying our values, not just healthcare, but again, with respect to our safety vis-a-vis Iran, with respect to our enjoyment of things vis-a-vis the FDA banning trans fats, um, with respect to packing the courts, and who knows how many various effects that's going to have if he's packing the federal courts with judges sympathetic to his agenda uh, etc. So let's go on here into the second hour and try to talk about things that are more positive. But this is when we're going to get into some of the, the false alternative discussion here. Because, and, and actually, you know, why, why don't we have a little bit of comic relief? I, I like this one little post that I put over on the Don't Let It Go Unheard page. I mean, not, not the page, excuse me, my blog, don'tletitgo.com. Don'tletitgo.com has all of the stories that I'm discussing here today. And one of them, I have a link to a Facebook post by Bosch Faustin, who, you know, unfortunately, like I said, couldn't be here today. But he had a fantasy. And it, we've talked about this before, actually. You know, what, what would you do if you took over Obama's body for one minute 
during a televised speech. And he says, this is what he would have Obama say for the minute. Now, for the record, I think that this paragraph that he has on the post that I've linked to is longer than a minute, unless you speak really quickly, which sometimes Bosch can do. So he might be able to say this in a minute. I certainly can't. But let me go ahead and tell you what he thinks Obama should say. This is Bosch Boston taking over Obama's body for one minute. He says, let me stop for a moment to be honest with you for once. I'm a pathological liar, a congenital anti-American who is unfit to be president of the greatest country in the history of the world. I resign immediately as president, no matter what I may say after this. I repeat, no matter what I may say after this. And my entire administration must resign as well. If you knew the crimes we've committed, the articles of impeachment would make Obamacare, which must be repealed ASAP, look like a mere pamphlet. Forgive me, Americans. You are a great people with a great heritage that my envy could not accept until this moment. You truly do not deserve the government you have. To my supporters, I say, read Atlas Shrugged and reread it for the rest of your lives. Oh, and I'm an atheist with a hard spot for Islam who pretended to be a Christian for political reasons and Michelle used to be a man and... And it cuts off there. Even Bosch couldn't say more than that in one minute. So um, that was his little fantasy of what Obama should be saying if... Bosch took over his body for one minute. In terms of a reaction to Obama supposedly apologizing for Americans losing health coverage, there is only one real answer, and that is the answer that was posted on Facebook by Senator Ted Cruz. And he says, Mr. President, if you are really sorry, then we need a full repeal. And that's the answer, because if they do anything less than a full repeal, there are going to be people who lose their health insurance and the health care that they have. This is, I mean, this is the effect. Again, those of us who know the principle of what force does and that government is force and everything that it's doing, it is forcing people to act other than the way that they would, you know, act otherwise if they were left free. That's what they're doing here. They're forcing these companies to sell policies that they wouldn't have sold. They're forcing us to buy policies that we wouldn't have bought. They're forcing doctors to do their jobs in ways that they wouldn't do otherwise. They're forcing them to put all of your personal data into a database. There's all this force going on that government is doing with Obamacare. Unless they withdraw that force, somebody is going to be prevented from being productive, from producing the values. And if it's the insurance company, that is being prevented from producing the types of values that they produced before when they were left free, somebody's going to lose their insurance. I mean, it's the inevitable consequence of this. So, yes, if there's anything less than a full repeal, there will be people, maybe a smaller minority, that will be losing their insurance. But, you you know, suppose you say, oh, well, now if we do this little tinkering, then only one million people will lose their insurance. That's still one million people. You tinker some more. Only 500,000. I couldn't imagine that they could tinker and tinker and get anything less than 500,000. But, you know, you can, you can imagine. I don't care if it's five. It's wrong. So we do. And, and Ted Cruz is exactly right. And he has been pushing and pushing this line, which I think is good. You know, for what I've said about him last week about abortion, I was disappointed that he talked about the, uh, the abortion issue with respect to Texas like him using his national platform to take time out and do that stuff. But he has mostly been hammering this issue and consistently calling for a full repeal of Obamacare, 
which makes him unique among politicians, which uh, I applaud him for. And the other thing that he has been doing some very good things about today is the Iran deal. Press release by Senator Ted Cruz on the Iran deal. U.S. Senator Ted Cruz expressed grave concerns today regarding reports that Secretary of State John Kerry may strike a deal to lift economic sanctions on Iran in exchange for an agreement that the country will temporarily halt its uranium enrichment program. Here's the quote from Cruz. He says, if the reports are correct, this is a terrible deal and it is dangerous for America. The prospect of Iran acquiring nuclear weapon capacity is the gravest national security threat we face. Yet it appears that this deal does not require Iran to to, to dismantle even a single centrifuge or turn over even a single pound of enriched uranium. To lift economic sanctions on Iran in exchange for an amorphous promise to pause their immediate efforts to acquire nuclear weapons makes no sense whatsoever. It almost is surely unverifiable and lifting the sanctions will only encourage Iran to surreptitiously continue to develop nuclear weapons, weapons that, if acquired, pose an existential threat to America and our allies. This is what I like. I like a politician who is so articulate that I have a difficult time reading his press release. He says, The United States should negotiate from a position of strength, not weakness. We should have insisted on good faith measures before meeting with the Iranians directly, such as the release of Pastor Saeed Abedini and the acknowledgement of Israel's right to exist as a Jewish state. Yeah, you think they'll ever do that. He continues, he says, Prime Minister Netanyahu has taken the extraordinary step of condemning what is happening in Geneva as a very, very bad deal. President Obama should not abandon our friend and ally Israel, and he should not cut a deal that endangers the national security of the United States, end quote. Good for him. I don't think you hear anything that strong from somebody who might have a potential to win the presidential nomination anytime soon. So I'm definitely impressed with that. The people, other people are definitely also impressed with it. And there's a lot of people who are not deterred by the fact that Chris Christie, who is, if you listen to the media, he's the presumptive nominee for 2016. There's a number of people who are not deterred from their support of Cruz. One of them is George Newmeyer over at the American Spectator Bravo to Newmeyer. I'll tell you why in a second. It's kind of a funny little thing of mine. But he said the headline of the story published two days ago on the 6th, look to Cruz, not to Christie. And he says Arnold Schwarzenegger won re-election handily in 2006. The gubernator Schwarzenegger. Uh, he says he defeated his hapless opponent, Phil and Angelitas. I can't even remember this guy by a 56 to 38.9 margin. Yet, this sizable win was a meaningless victory for the GOP. Similarly, Chris Christie's thumping victory on Tuesday night over an equally forgettable candidate, I don't even know the name of the candidate, contains almost no national meaning, save that Chris Christie is good for Chris Christie. He says, like Schwarzenegger, Christie cruised to re-election, not as a real Republican, but as a preening, nonpartisan moderate. I love it screening nonpartisan moderate. He says, like Schwarzenegger, Christie's popularity hasn't translated into any support for Republicans in his own legislature. 
That's important, right? He, yeah, he can be reelected as governor. But if he doesn't have Republican majorities in his legislature, what can he do? I don't know a whole lot about the politics of New Jersey, but as I understand, they still have exceedingly high property taxes in New Jersey, that there there really hasn't been a whole lot that has changed. Chris Christie has gotten himself reelected, and he's made himself very popular, and he can go on some night talk shows and create a buzz about being elected in 2016. But what has he actually gotten done in New Jersey? How has he improved New Jersey? That's what I'd like to know. But anyway, uh, Neumeier goes on to say, he says, which raises the question. Notice he doesn't say which begs the question. He understands what begs the question means. Bravo. He says, which raises the question, how could Christie turn blue states red nationwide if he can't turn his own legislature red? I love it. This is a different angle on Christie as, you know, why we should not support him as a candidate. You know, the idea is, well, Christie, he can win in a blue state. Well, he can't turn the state red is what he's saying. And so that, you know, the fact that he can win is actually meaningless because all he's going to be able to get across in terms of policy is liberal policy. He says the breathless burbling about how Chris Christie's victory shows the path forward for the GOP conveniently ignores his inability to turn New Jersey red for anyone but himself. Before Election Day, the New Jersey media didn't see any reason for the Dems to worry about a Christie victory as they enjoy a 48-32 majority in the Assembly and a 24-16 lead in the Senate. Those are huge margins, people. So he says, like Schwarzenegger, Christie is a useful idiot for the Democrats. I'm skipping down here. He says, a needy, politically correct, ruling class Republican who is trending liberal on everything from climate change to gay marriage to size of government issues. Christie loves the liberal limelight a trait that will only intensify over time. So, I, you know, th- this idea that, um, you know, Chris Christie is the guy, no. And then when they were talking about Ted Cruz and Cuccinelli, Cuccinelli in Virginia, you know, Cuccinelli lost by a small margin in Virginia. Apparently, Cuccinelli was avoiding Ted Cruz. It says, in the, in the clearest sign yet, of the potent effect of a government shutdown on the Virginia governor's race, Republican Ken Cuccinelli avoided being photographed with Ted Cruz at a gala that they headlined it here on Saturday night. Uh, Even leaving before the Texas senator rose to speak, reported Politico in early October. So October, I mean, excuse me, October, Politico is trying to get across the idea that people are abandoning Ted Cruz. But I think if, Cuccinelli had embraced Ted Cruz and particularly had embraced Ted Cruz's fight against Obamacare, that could have made the difference in this. Because if you think about it, he lost by a small margin, and part of that was due to this libertarian, so-called libertarian candidate. I I don't really think it means much of anything. (sighs) Matt in the chat room is waiting for me to eat but I don't, I don't think I'm going to eat anything here. I think I'm going to take another sip of my latte, though. And in honor of Chris Christie, I am drinking my non-trans fat half-and-half latte. Mm. Now, I have a couple phone calls here. Let me go ahead and take a phone call, see if we've got a reaction to Ted Cruz versus Chris Christie. Hi, who's this? Hi, Amy. It's Robert. Hey, hi, hi Robert. How are you? I'm good. So, yes, to respond to, first of all, Ted Cruz, I liked what he said about uh, Iran. Mm -hmm. 
Of course, they're not going to follow his advice. Uh, but Cuccinelli, that that I didn't know that he avoided seeing Ted Cruz. The the one of the one of the things that I read that um, prevented him from winning a couple of things. One was the shutdown, the government shutdown, which they blamed on Republicans. Right. Everyone blamed on Republicans. And then the other was that he was very anti-abortion. And that was obviously a turnoff to a large segment of the voting public. So um, I still wish he won, you know, uh, because I think McAuliffe is really, really bad. And I don't think I don't think any of these anti-abortionists will ever get their laws actually passed. So, um, so yeah, that's that, that's my my two cents on this this latest uh, topic that you just spoke about. Well, you know, the other reason that he lost was because the GOP abandoned Cuccinelli in Virginia as well. And this has been <laughs> this has been talked right. to death. This has been talked to death. But yeah. there's a, there's an article that I linked to and that Bosch Faustin uh, turned me on to from IJ Review, which is an independent journal. GOP mm-hmm. gives up for you know GOP gives up Virginia to Democrats instead of giving Tea Party and social conservatives a win. And basically, here are the facts. It says the Republican National Committee spent three times as much in 2009 on the same race as they did this year. Chamber of Commerce spent $1 million in the last governor's race and not one dime on Cuccinelli. Mm-hmm. The Chamber of mm-hmm. Commerce, boycott, boycott, boycott Chamber of Commerce, uh, says, while, it, while it's often claimed that the Tea Party candidates do, bo- do poorly among independents, Cuccinelli actually won independents by nine points. And then it mm-hmm. says McAuliffe, McAuliffe outraised Cuccinelli by almost $15 million. And it says in the last weeks of the campaign, this left Cuccinelli with nearly no media exposure. And it says even Politico wonders if Cuccinelli was beginning to turn the tide against the war on women narrative as he drove down McAuliffe's lead against the uh, against women. Uh, it was he had the lead from nine, uh, excuse me, from 24 percent down to nine percent. So he was mm. closing the gap even mm-hmm. without financial support. Plus, there was this libertarian mm-hmm. third-party candidate. So it, it's crazy that you know you would say that this is a meaningful victory for McAuliffe, and it's somehow a meaningful defeat for the Tea Party, and somehow that you know Christie winning in New Jersey combined with McAuliffe losing in Virginia therefore means that the Tea Party is toast or anything like that. I think it's a bunch of garbage. And and when you see Cuccinelli, you know, uh, failing to embrace Ted Cruz and everything that Ted Cruz has been doing. That sinks him as well. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree, yeah. and and I I think the 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 false alternative, I guess, to keep in theme with your show is is that we have to have these two kinds of Republicans, either GOP or Tea Party, just get rid of the GOP. <laughs> That's now, simple. That- that is that is not quite the false alternative that I have in mind, and I, and I want I want I want you to hang on because you're you're one of the people who inspired the discussion on this false alternative this week. So go go ahead and hang on, and then if you end sure. up wanting to, to talk again, go ahead and and write something there in the in the chat room, and l- let's get on to that part. So one thing that I wanted I want to play a couple clips of Chris Christie before I go into what these false alternatives are. Uh, that I that I want to talk about. Here is the little clip in which Chris Christie talks about the fact that he's not concerned with the Tea Party 
support. Now, this is from Breitbart. I can't remember if there's an ad that I'm going to have. Oh, God, there's some click ad that I just clicked on. Um, let me see if there's an ad. Yeah, there's an ad here that I'm going to have to mute for a second, guys. Sorry about it. I try not to have ads on my show. You know, this is a donor-supported show. And so I will try to relieve you from this ad. Here we go. No, I think I think uh, what you're going to find is that uh, with tomorrow night's results, you don't have to worry about that. We killed everybody, and uh, we'll get huge Republican support, 94, 95 percent tomorrow night at least. So I, it, it hasn't affected us here at all, and I don't think it'll affect me or this kind of politics anywhere in the country because. People want things to get done, and that's the message here. They want government to work for them. People want things to get done. I don't care about Tea Party support. You should see the look of contempt on this guy's face when she asked him, you know, are you concerned about whether you're getting any tea? No, no, no. You know, I get these huge Republican majorities. I, I, don't, I don't care about Tea Party support. I care about getting things done now. You know, one, one of the fallacies here is, you know, this, this idea that if you don't support Chris Christie, and I, and I don't, right, if there is an election for some reason, Chris Christie versus Hillary Clinton in 2016, which is what some people think it's going to shape up to be, am I going to not vote for Chris Christie because I don't support his – I was going to say something horrible, but I'm not going to. Don't support him? No, I'm going to vote for the jerk. Um, I'm going to vote for him if I have to, but I'm going to try to do whatever I can in my little way with my little show to support somebody else who is more in line with my ideas than him, somebody else who could potentially get elected on the national scene. No, I'm not going to write myself in. I'm not going to write your own book. And we've had this conversation before, but you know, this idea that, well, there, because people vote for him, therefore he shouldn't be concerned about tea party. He should be concerned about tea party support. There's not a tea partier that's going to get elected in New Jersey right now. I think a tea partier could get elected nationally because there could be a lot of crossover and enough red states to do it. But New Jersey is not going to be one of them, as evidenced by the vast majorities that the Democrats have in his New Jersey state legislatures, which he hasn't been able to budge, which we learned about thanks to the prior article. Now, let's get uh, Christie on how Republicans can win elections again. This is another audio, and I'm hoping that this audio is going to come through a little better. Let's see how this goes, people. Let me see if I can get it to play. A little sausage here for you. Okay, here we go. The national implications for the party. Your party's in something of a troubled spot right now. Yep. Dick Cheney told me last week that the Republican Party's in trouble. It needs new candidates. Now, he was obviously plugging his daughter. Yeah. But, but uh, uh, what do you think national Republicans should look at when they look at this race versus Virginia? Well, I don't know about versus Virginia because we don't know what's going to happen in Virginia yet. Well, we know it's going to be a struggle, though. It is going to be tight, a tight race as compared to here. Um, listen, I think that the party's got to focus on winning again. Um, you know, sometimes I feel like our party cares more about winning the argument than they care about winning elections. And if you don't win elections, you can't govern. And if you can't govern, you can't change the direction of a state like we've done in New Jersey. And so, uh, you know, I don't I, – I, so, one, I think we need to get ourselves refocused on that. And secondly, um, I think sometimes we forget that candidates matter. I mean, it's not just about a checklist of issues. It's also about how a person – presents themselves as a candidate, um, how they articulate their view on things and how they react 
the situations. And people make judgments based on all those things. It's interesting you say that because I heard a criticism from a Democrat about, about you. I'm going to go ahead and cut this off here. Basic, basically, what he wants to go on and say is that when you decide about a candidate, it's not about a lineup of the different issues and their position on the issues at all. It's this, he, said, he, he used the word visceral. And you can go watch the whole clip. There's a link at my blog, don'tletitgo.com, uh, to this clip. But he used the word visceral. It's a visceral type of decision. But the, you know, the money quote that people have been uh, talking about earlier this week in there was when he said they're more concerned with winning the argument than with winning elections. This guy is dismissing ideology entirely. But listen, in, in a certain way, he has a bit of a point, right, which is that if you're going to support a candidate, you're going to support a candidate that could actually win something so that they can do something. Why get involved in politics at all if the candidate that you're trying to support isn't going to be able to do anything? It would be really dumb for you to right now to say, okay, we support Amy Peacock for president 2016 because I have a show on Blog Talk Radio and I'm otherwise completely unknown and there's no way I could ever get elected as president because my ideas are too radical for right now and everything. But if you have somebody like Ted Cruz, I could see, I don't know that he really could win. I'm a bit skeptical that he could win as president in 2016, personally. But I could see that it's possible that a Ted Cruz, in today's context, could actually win if the right things happen between now and then. I could see that that could happen. So, you you know, on, on the one hand, you do have to, if you're going to be involved in politics, if you're going to be involved in evaluating and deciding whether you're going to support candidates and actually give money to a campaign and all this stuff, you have to choose based on somebody who can win. And you don't necessarily have to agree with every single thing that they say. So the false alternative, and, and again, if you want a little brush up on what a false alternative means, right? it's funny because here's Chris Christie. I don't support him at all. But he's bringing up this idea of a false alternative, you know, that, that, you know, it is a false alternative to say that you can either support a candidate that is, you know, exactly what you want or nothing at all. Or suppose this, right? I mean, here's, here's the false alternative that I think that has been coming out on Facebook and in discussions this last week. And then also on this show last week, uh, some people say you shouldn't support any candidate right now, no political candidate at all. Why? Because maybe the best candidate out there, Ted Cruz, he supports banning abortion or he supports restrictions on abortion, and he's talked about these things. So let's just go ahead and wait until John Galt, presumably for fans of my show, John Galt would be the ideal candidate. Let's just wait until John Galt wins, and then we'll get involved in politics and elections and we'll start supporting candidates. That's one side. The other side is, well, let's find whoever the best candidate is out there, and I think it happens to be Ted Cruz right now, but let's support him, but don't criticize him too much. You know, if he talks about abortion and you don't agree with his position on abortion, that you actually think abortion should remain legal, regardless of whether you think in certain instances it would be immoral for the woman to have an abortion. And I mean, there are a number of instances in which I would agree with Cruz and Lee and others where they talk about these really grisly late-term abortions. I'd be asking myself, why are people doing this? In some cases, I think there are irresponsible people who wait to the last minute to have these grisly abortions. If, if that's the case, I agree. Those are immoral. I still think they have to be legal for various 
technical legal reasons. I disagree with him. I will criticize him to the extent that he's pushing that agenda. But nonetheless, I would support him and I would definitely support him over Chris Christie. And up until the, you know, the only choice that we have is Chris Christie versus Hillary Clinton, I would push for Ted Cruz all the time over Chris Christie because I think that our life would be so much better. At the same time, I would say that looking at the political candidates today and people's reactions to them and the fact that even Obama, shown to be a total liar, still gets 30-some-odd percent of the country approving of him, it shows that it's, it's really early um, to look for that ideal candidate. And like I said, there are people who are very optimistic about Ted Cruz's chance in 2016. I'm, I'm fairly optimistic. I mean, I, I do think if we could manage to nominate a Ted Cruz I think that there is a sense in which he would have a much better chance winning over Hillary than Chris Christie because basically, again, Hillary Clinton would just be a more consistent liberal than Chris Christie. Chris Christie is just a pragmatist who wants to win elections. It's, it's so funny because he just says, oh, well, people will just tell people what they want to hear. But what does Chris Christie stand for? What change is it that he's achieved in New Jersey? So... Anyway, I, I reject that false alternative. I'm actually glad uh, Robert NYC in the chat room, who was one person who was criticized. It was, it was Ed and Robert last week who were talking to me about my criticism of Ted Cruz. Why criticize Ted Cruz? I will vigorously criticize Ted Cruz on those things on which I disagree with him, but I will still support him and I will still go to Facebook and click like on all the things. And I, you know, when, if there's something, you know, again, it's, it's been very minor. I haven't seen him post a lot about it, but I'd love to see no posts at all about abortion. And I'd like to see him keep hitting Obama hard on Obamacare. I'd like to see him keep pushing for the full repeal of Obamacare. I love to see him pushing so strongly on the foreign policy issue as well, because this shows him to be head and shoulders above anybody with the last name Paul. Ron Paul, Rand Paul, etc. So I that that is one false alternative that I wanted to just kind of talk about. And I, like I said, ironically, it's because of Chris Christie. I have a few calls here that I want to go ahead and see if I can take one. I think this one is new. Hi, who's this? Hi, this is Matt. Matt, are you the Matt who has been hanging out in the chat room as well? I am. Hi. Well, thanks for calling in. Sure. Uh, I just wanted to, you know, I wanted to say, first of all, great show, and thanks for having me on. Thank you. And I just was thinking about what you were saying about um, Christie and, and sort of the false alternative, and it got me thinking, like, I do think you have to sort of parse out, you know, what's most important to you as a, as a voter and then kind of go from there, because I, I think it's kind of hard to find that John Galt, especially right now. Um, well, there is there is none. There is none, right? I mean, we would all love to write your own book in for 2016. Oh, I would love that. Or, or John Allison. You know, I mean, these, these are two people I think who would be capable of, of the job and, and have great ideas. Neither of them, as far as I know, would want the job at all, so they would hate us for writing them in. But the point is, is it's not going to happen. And, and so if you're going to have any sort of a hope or support for somebody, it's got to have somebody – the person has to at least – possibly be able to win that election and yes. I, I think ted cruz is the best of the ones that i see who might possibly win in 2016 right now within today's I, context i agree with that and but then when, when christy goes around talking about winning 
or, quote, getting things done, I think those are empty concepts to him in that I don't really see the point of another third-way, you know, pseudo-fascist winning, you know, when he doesn't really support private property. He's kind of, you know, there's middle of the road and all this stuff, moderate on everything, and getting things done. You know, what if I don't want government to get things done? I tell people this sometimes. It's like, why is this fixation with everyone getting things done? How about, how about a moratorium on legislation for six months or something? Yeah, I mean, or the only thing that there could be are le- legislation to repeal pre- previous legislation. <laughs> I would love that. You just go ahead, pick a pick a bill, repeal it, whatever it is. It's probably bad. But um, you know, with with Christie, there's a couple different things. First of all, how would they expect him to win after similar milk toasts? like McCain and Romney failed to win against liberal candidates. We're going to have probably Hillary Clinton running on the other side. She's the self-anointed, I mean, uh-huh. you know, it, it was skin color and now it's genitalia. And that's the criteria, I guess, that makes her the best candidate. It's so bizarre. But uh-huh. we, we know she's an ideologue and, and we know that she is more consistent and altruist and statist than is Chris Christie. The more consistent candidate will probably win. Uh, I mean, what does Chris Christie stand for? I, I don't even know. And he might be able to win on personality. So then here's the second thing. Suppose he wins on personality. What in the world would we get? Uh, again, I'd love to see anybody tell me how it is that New Jersey has fundamentally changed in any way, particularly with the liberal state legislature. Well, so. the only thing I'm aware of that he has done is take on the, the unions to a degree, but if you want someone who took on the unions and maybe has a better outlook, it would be Scott Walker. Yeah. You know, and, but and, outside, outside exactly. of that. Yeah, exactly. And, and and for what I know about Christie, too, he hasn't decreased taxes. He hasn't been able to do that. for, And new, that's one of the big things in New Jersey. They have a huge regulatory and tax burden as far as – I can't remember exactly how the lineup goes, but the three least free states – the three least free states in the entire country are New Jersey, California, and New York. And I can't remember in what order, but New Jersey is, I think, either number 48 or 49. And New York, New York is number 50. So I can't remember if it's us or New Jersey. It was funny because I was complaining the other day. In, in California, they are banning plastic bags in the grocery stores, not completely statewide yet, but in many of the cities, they've banned the use of plastic bags. And I'm complaining about this, and it turns out it's actually not exactly where I live where this is being done yet, but it, it's coming. It's going to happen. And someone writes on my Facebook, says, well, but you do live in California, and the person who wrote it lives in New Jersey. And I'm thinking, you're next. You know, <laughs> New Jersey, as far as I know, is just right up next to California in terms of one of the least free states in the country. So I don't think that, that Christie has had an effect on that. So this idea that he thinks, oh, well, I can give really strongly worded speeches against unions and create national attention as a tough guy, and now we're all going to think he's some tough Republican, you know, uh, non-statist guy. I, nobody believes that. His record will come out. Right. Well, let's not forget, too, that the, the plastic bags were developed as a green initiative initially, because they right. wanted to save the trees. Yep, yep. And now it's, of course, now it's just it's revolving in back on itself. But, yeah, I, I don't know where this whole thing is going to go, but I, I think you're for sure right about Hillary. And it's just a question of you've got to get someone who actually is, has a stark contrast. Uh, and to you, actually, is the words of Reagan, like bold differences, bold pastels, uh, not pastels, bold colors. 
and you're not going to get that with Christie. I mean, he's just going to be another Romney who, or, or McCain, exactly right. We keep getting told we need to have these establishment guys, and they let us down over and over. It, it, it's funny because I think Romney, I mean, excuse me, that Christie, and the, they're interchangeable really, but Christie is trying to pass himself off as somebody who criticizes Republicans. But if anybody recalls back from Reagan, and I was a bit young to remember everything that Reagan did when he was campaigning or anything, but he would criticize Republicans on policy, not on tactics like this, right? And that's the same thing with Ted Cruz. Ted Cruz is forthright. He criticizes his fellow GOP members on policy. If anybody is, you know, going in the footsteps of Reagan, it's definitely Ted Cruz. Yeah, he's he's the principal candidate, and Christie is, like you said, anti-ideological just as a base. And that's why everyone's attacking Cruz is because he has the audacity to stand for something. Yeah, you need you need to win elections, not arguments. No, you need to win arguments because arguments are about the policy and the ideas that matter to people's lives. And then you need to win elections based on your winning of arguments. So uh, at least that's what I would hope would happen. But maybe progressive education has dumbed everybody so down that they they just go by the, the – he, he said the word visceral. Voting is a visceral thing. This is the kind of thing he's counting on. Oh, that's that's well said, for sure. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Matt, for, for calling in, and I'm going to go ahead and talk about the second false alternative that I wanted to discuss today. And the second one is this idea that you either have to be completely immersed in the day-to-day of politics. Um, and some people, they get so immersed in what is going on moment by moment and day to day in politics, this candidate, this election, this and everything else, that they end up making themselves miserable because there is a lot of bad news out there. I mean, listen, if you listen to me cataloging the horrible things that Obama and his administration were doing every day, plus the failure of the Republicans to fight them in any substantive way, et cetera, et cetera, if you hear that day after day after day, it can get really depressing, right? So I think the the next false alternative that I just want to put out there is that you don't have to be completely immersed all the time to the extent that it makes you miserable in order to show that you're not giving up on the world. Uh, you don't have to give up entirely engaging with the you know with the world of politics if you don't want to be immersed every single day. There is a middle ground. Exactly how to strike that balance for the individual person, everybody has to decide for him or herself. But I find if I get too much politics, I get unmotivated. You don't, you end up not wanting to accomplish anything in your own life. And this is all about our lives and making it better. And yes, by being involved on the political scene, we can help to try to make things better within our lifetime. And, and I enjoy doing so to the extent that I can on this show, etc. But this idea of either completely immersing, following every single thing and being up on this and watching what this one said and that one said and everything else, or nothing at all, you're giving up on the world, I reject that as a false alternative as well. You've got to find a middle ground that suits whatever your particular temperament is. The goal is to live your life and be productive first and foremost. And, of course, in the process, hopefully be able to do things that make the world a better place. And in that note, I've got the little Ayn Rand bot embedded tweet over at the don't, 
Let It Go blog. If you go to don'tletitgo.com and you see the post for today, one of the things that I have in the program notes is this tweet. And Rand said that you should never think of pain or danger or enemies a moment longer than is necessary to fight them. End quote. And if you remember discussions that we've had with Jerome Brook time and again, and he's very inspiring. This is a long-term battle. This is a long-term ideological battle. So I think you come in, you look at the news to the extent that you can stomach it, you analyze it, you evaluate it, you share your evaluations out there with people in your circle of influence to the extent that you think it's going to help people understand the world from the correct perspective, help make the world a better place, help you you know, keep your sanity by continuing to evaluate these things because you, I mean, you can't just, like I said, tune out entirely. But I think it's important, you know, keep that balance to the extent that you can fight them both within your own mind and, and out there, then go ahead and do it. But not a moment longer. We did talk already about the next story that I linked to at don'tletitgo.com. That is the GOP giving up Virginia to the Democrats instead of giving Tea Party and social conservatives a win. The GOP has shown its cards. The GOP is scared of Tea Party candidates who want to roll back the size and scope of government. And in that article, as I said, the Chamber of Commerce, among others, are called out. I would say the Chamber of Commerce are people to watch, people to boycott in the future. If they are enemies of the Tea Party, again, in today's context, a war on tea is a war on me. I will call them out. I will boycott them to the extent that I can, and that's it. Some good news. We want to talk about the people who are out there writing, sharing their ideas in the ways that they can, doing good stuff, producing, and I do want to spend the rest of the show today talking about the good stuff. One, and this is something that someone in the chat room mentioned earlier, is an article over at Forbes. Apparently there's three articles over at Forbes that I should have linked to at my blog today. Uh, One of them was by Alex Epstein and another one by Steve Simpson. But the one that I did link to was written by Harry Binswanger. It was published earlier this week. And the headline is, when it comes to hate, the left beats the right hands down. And he speaks from personal experience because he had written the Forbes column about giving back to the 1%, saying, in essence, that we actually owe a debt of gratitude to those producers who increase our standard of living, give us all these wonderful things. You know, I finally got my iPhone 5S this week. It took a long time from the time I ordered it to actually when I got it. And it is a beautiful thing. It is a thing to behold. It runs faster than the prior iPhone. It doesn't seem to get as hung up as much on some of the apps that I use. And I'm very, very pleased with it. So all the time I like to, you know, thank the the companies that produce the products that make my life a lot better and easier. And he said that's what he did in his column And he was called a psychopath, a sociopath, a sick bastard, and a, quote, leech on the ass of humanity, end quote. And then he said in emails, he was told, quote, you better watch your effing back when you leave your house. As a matter of fact, I'm pretty sure that you won't be safe inside your house either. He says, I can already, another one says, I can already hear the calls of off with his head. Another one says, there will be a rope and a lamppost waiting for you. 
And he says, why? You know, did you did he call for the return of slavery? Did he call for just, you know, death to the Jews? And he said, no, he actually called for people to honor the great wealth creators for what they have given us. And of course, he argues in a, uh, for our right to keep what we earn in free exchange. Those two things that he argued for got him that spew of hate. And he talks about his experience going to a gathering for Al Cap. And Al Cap, I don't know if you know the cartoonist Al Cap, he had started out left wing or, you know, more liberal. And then he switched to the Republican Party, became a conservative. And there was a party, I guess, either in his honor or just for people to meet him. And he shared the fact that the hate mail that he got from the left after he had converted, you know, become more right wing, uh, converted, I don't know, he changed his mind. You don't call it a conversion, it's politics. But, uh, you know, he, he had gotten so much hate mail. And he says uh, that the, the hate mail that he had gotten from those on the right could not compare with the vehemence of the hate mail he started getting from the left. And he says, uh, and this is Binswanger writing, he says, hatred on the left goes down to the core of the leftist's being. And he doesn't, Binswanger, he doesn't use the term liberal to refer to the angry left. He says the old style liberals were not hate-soaked. And in effect, he says the left today, they are nihilists. So he follows uh, and agrees with Leonard Peikoff on this. He says um, the, you know, today's left, he says the angry left can't be appeased because its denizens don't want anything. They are nihilistic. He says they are not pro-Arab. They are anti-America. They are not pro-poor. They are anti-rich. They are not pro-equality. They are anti-excellence. They are not pro-charity. They are anti-achievement. And if you think about this, think about back to Obama with destroying all of our health care right now. They're not helping poor people get health care. They are destroying the excellent health care that people who could afford it at one point were getting. That is what they are doing. Uh, the examples are, are legion. You know, his idea of fundamentally transforming America, he means destroy it, and that's exactly what they're doing. He says, uh, philosophically, the doctrines of self-sacrifice and egalitarianism fuel the angry leftist nihilist rage. He says, for if it is evil to prosper and vicious to excel, then hatred of the extraordinary wealth creators is justified. Capitalist profit-seeking cannot be reconciled with the collectivist slogan of from each according to his ability to each according to his need. And he said, uh, Ayn Rand wrote 40 years ago, this is quoting from Rand, collectivism does not preach sacrifice as a temporary means to some desirable end. Sacrifice is its end. Sacrifice is a way of life. It is man's independence, success, prosperity, and happiness that collectivists wish to destroy. And then Harry Binswanger ends. He says, imagine what she would write today. I don't even, I think Ayn Rand would, if she was here today, she'd have a heart attack based on what was going on. I, you, there's so much that's so bad, it's literally not believable. But I say bravo to Harry Binswanger for going out there and, and writing this and exposing them for what they are. And particularly if he's getting threats, just go out and expose them. I mean, this is what I've seen Robert Spencer do as well. If he gets a death threat, Robert Spencer of Jihad Watch gets lots of them. He just posts them and gives the IP address and stuff. I, I think it'd be good to give the IP address of these people as well. These are evil, evil people who say, how dare you call 
for us to thank the wealth creators who make our life better. That's about as vicious as it gets. So kudos to Harry Benswanger for keeping on with that. And then I've got, again, a link at my blog, don'tletitgo.com, to Don Watkins, who this week took on uh, Cass Sunstein. Sunstein is trying to resurrect the old smear about Ayn Rand being a materialist. And um, Sunstein apparently wrote a piece contrasting Atlas Shrugged with Whitaker Chambers. And Chambers had earlier done a smear review of Atlas Shrugged years and years ago. And then uh, Leonard Peikoff responded to it, you know, and and answered it. But this is... um, This is the smear, basically. Chambers goes so far, and this is Sunstein writing, Chambers goes so far as to link Rand with Karl Marx. Both, he says, are motivated by a kind of materialism in which people's happiness lies not with God or with anything spiritual, and much less with an appreciation of human limitations, but only with the use of their, quote, own workaday hands and ingenious brain, end quote. Leonard Peikoff responded to this criticism as follows, quote, Mr. Chambers declares that Miss Rand's philosophy is materialism. How can a philosophy which worships the creative thinking mind be called materialism? How can a philosophy be called materialism which declares that one should go on strike against the world and abandon all its goods rather than renounce his mind? It could only be so-called by a mystic such as Mr. Chambers for whom there are only two alternatives. Either you love life on earth, in which case you are a vulgar materialist, or you hate life on earth and believe in a mystical super dimension whose existence and nature you know by blinding revelations, in which case your anti-materialism consists in hating everything material. End quote. So we have, first of all, a false alternative, the third one of today, which is this you know, dichotomy between either living life on earth and being a vulgar materialist or believing in the mystical super dimension. And again, you know, Obama, it's like, well, what does he matter? What does it matter if a few people lose their insurance policies? You know, this is, this is just details. This is details of life here on this earth. And I've got this noble ideal that's coming to me from the form of the good of the other dimension, the platonic, world of the forms out there, right? You know, we, we've got this vision of universal health care for everyone. And, you know, if I'm bothered by telling the truth about what it's going to do to a few 10 million people, that's, that's going to clutter my message, so said the policy advisors, right? It's, it's going to clutter the message. We don't care about these details of the physical world of what's really going to happen when we try to implement our master plan. We have our noble master plan, so just get out of the way. But the interesting thing is that this, dichotomy here is coming as a criticism from someone on the right because what they themselves embrace their own idea of the so-called spiritual over the physical until people understand that there is not this dichotomy between the physical and the spiritual that the spiritual for man involves making things from the physical until they reject that, we uh, we, re- we do. We have a long battle. We have a long battle to wage. And again, I, I will support less than perfect candidates while we're waging that battle. But you know, stuff like this, it reminds us that both from the left and the right are ideas, the ideas that are going to be necessary in order to really get us out of this mess. 
that Obama and his predecessors have created. Those ideas have a long way from being accepted. Let's praise a few more people. I've got some companies now. Okay, so we have first the people who are out there doing the ideological battle, writing and speaking against the wrong ideas and for the right ideas. And now we have companies in their quest just to produce products and make money doing the right thing. One is Apple, a story from Reuters that I've linked to at DontLetItGo.com. Apple details government information requests for the first time. And as I posted this story the other day, I found this story on Twitter. I was scared to read it. As, oh my gosh, you know, first of all, I'm an Apple customer and aficionado, so you know, what am I going to learn? But also, I just don't want Apple to disappoint me, and I'm so glad to say that Apple has not disappointed me at all in this article. They disclosed the number of requests that they've had, and they've disclosed the number of requests that they've complied with to the extent that the government has allowed them to do so. So this is what the government allows them to say. It says that from January 1st to June 30th of this year, Apple said it received between 1,000 and 2,000 account information requests from law enforcement bodies, and those requests would affect between 2,000 and 3,000 Apple accounts. It said it disclosed data on somewhere between 0 and 1,000 accounts. They can't tell you exactly how many accounts that they actually gave information about. They can't tell you the extent to which they resisted the request, what criteria they would use, blah, 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 blah. But somewhere between zero and 1,000 accounts, they gave information to the government in response to these requests. It says, Apple, along with other technology companies, is allowed only to report such numbers in increments of 1,000. And also, they must combine law enforcement and national security requests in their numbers, making it impossible to know exactly how many are security-related. The company registered its opposition to those strictures on Tuesday, and here's a quote from Apple. They said, we feel strongly that the government should lift the gag order and permit companies to disclose complete and accurate numbers regarding the FISA court requests and the national security letters, Apple said. So bravo to them. You can go read more about the story at my blog at DontLetItGo.com. I want to make sure and save some time here for a couple more things on, on the list over there. Next story, hat tip, Rob Abiera. Thanks for sending this one. Google security engineers take to plus means, you know, they go to Google plus. That's their social network that they have there. They take to Google plus to blast the NSA. Google's official response to a Washington Post report last month that the NSA was taking advantage of its links in its, Yah uh, in its and Yahoo's data centers where data traveled unencrypted to intercept that data was one of tempered anger. So they, I guess Google learned of this for the first time through a Washington Post report. This is probably still all links that we have, leaks that we have thanks to Edward Snowden. And here's a quote from Google in reaction, quote, we are outraged at the lengths to which the government seems to have gone to intercept data from our private fiber networks, and it underscores the need for urgent reform, end quote, Google's chief legal officer David Drummond told The Post. Along with Facebook, Apple, Yahoo, Microsoft, and AOL, it wrote an incensed but polite letter to Congress asking that the NSA be reined in. 
But on Google Plus, its social network, its security engineers are less restrained in voicing their anger about the infiltration of their data. Linking to the Post report and noting that he was voicing his views, not those of his employer, even if writing them publicly on his employer's social network, Mountain View-based security engineer Brandon Downey wrote, F these guys, that's what he wrote, F these guys, after describing some of his efforts to keep Google users safe and their data secure, along with a few Lord of the Rings references, Downey concludes, the U.S. has to be better than this, end quote. And as far as I know, a lot of the people at Google are quite liberal, but when they see government intrusion affect what they do there, what their customers do, and their bottom line, maybe they start to change their tune. I think the same goes for some journalists. When journalists start to see the federal government invade their privacy because they don't like the leaks that the journalist is exposing, et cetera, et cetera, they start to question whether an all-powerful government is, is such a great thing. So bravo to Google as well. People in the chat room are saying, is this, is this the closing on a good note part of the show? Yeah, this is what we're doing. We're saying bravo to these producers who are fighting the government in, I mean, here directly, but producing values and bucking a trend in, in other places as well. Let's, let's go to a little bit lighthearted example of that. And that is, there's a company called J&D Power. JN, you can go find them. They're jdfoods.net. I've linked to it on my blog at don'tletitgo.com. JND Foods is pleased to announce the launch of Power Bacon Deodorant. JND's Power Bacon Deodorant. And the tagline is for when you sweat like a pig. So it's too bad that Bosch Faustin isn't here to talk about his Pigman character. But I'm, you know, I guess Pigman is going to have to use Jandy's Power Bacon Deodorant. Maybe maybe he can swing a sponsorship from J&D Power. There could be like a little ad or something. I don't know if, if Bosch is allowed to have ads in his comic, but maybe he could have a product placement. I mean, there's product placement in movies. So I think there needs to be Power Bacon Deodorant in a Pigman comic. But it says, Power Bacon is the meaty, fresh evolution of J&D's meat-flavored and scented health and beauty products division. Designed specifically for people with active lifestyles, Power Bacon provides 24 hours of bacon scent. For all-day meat-scented protection, apply liberally to underarms or private areas. <laughs> Do not eat, leave exposed to sunlight, or explore the wilderness without a firearm. Not for sale in Alaska. And they say, just kidding, we'll totally take your money if you live in Alaska. As far as I know, in the first story that I read where they were linking to it, they said that they also had a bacon-scented shaving cream. And I figured that the bacon-scented shaving cream would probably be a better idea than the deodorant. I'm just saying. I don't know. I think, you know, I love bacon, but if somebody smelled like bacon all day long, I, I think that would just be too much, and I'd probably not like bacon as much anymore. The other thing, too, is, as much as they probably tried to give a very faithful rendition of the bacon smell, it probably wouldn't be as appetizing as real bacon. And somehow, I don't know, it, it, it could go wrong. It really could. But I, I think it's a great idea. I think it's great to buck the anti-pork 
trend and throw bacon in people's faces in as many ways as possible because bacon is probably one of the world's most perfect foods, I think. So bravo to them. And then finally, I want to play for you a little bit of a commercial here. So let me just go ahead and play the Craftsman TV commercial called Made to Make. Let me get it here to boot up. Here we go. We were born to make, mold, shape, build. Incredible things. Coursing through our veins, the urge to make something from nothing. Trust in every cut. Build a legacy with each pass. And find there is nothing you can't create. Go ahead and inspire the rest of us. We all are and always will be made to make. Get great deals this Friday and Saturday, including 50% off this 220 Okay, okay, we don't need the rest of the details. But is that not a really nice statement about human ingenuity, this idea that human beings are made to make things, and he's made to make something out of nothing. Not all the Craftsman commercials are this good. This one just made me take note and say bravo. But there are other ones where they say, well, make it instead of buy it. No, that's really not the point. But the idea of human beings being made to make things, to make something out of nothing, I think says a lot. So everyone, um, thank you everyone for tuning in today. And I uh, just go to my blog, don'tletitgo.com if you want to check out the program notes for today, leave a comment, etc. And I will talk to you next week. Boss Faustin will return then. Have a good weekend.